Accelerating Synthetic Reality. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Peter Rojas, partner at Betawork Ventures. Welcome, Peter. Hi, thanks for having me back on. Absolutely. So for those people who may not have seen you on here before, or maybe uh, they're not familiar with your work, what, is, what does Betaworks do? So, uh, Betaworks Ventures, we are a seed stage uh, fund. We make investments uh, often uh, first check or very, very early in startups that are building in what we call emerging consumer behavior. So we're looking for uh, sort of frontier technology startups that are figuring out uh, new ways that we connect or communicate or create uh, in sort of new categories or emerging categories. And, and some of those right now that we're looking at are uh, voice interfaces and spatial computing stuff like augmented reality, uh, looking at, at esports and, and game streaming, uh, and a new category which we call synthetic reality, which we've been very active in lately. I want to get into that. In fact, for, as you mentioned, for the past few years, you've been doing these beta work camps and uh, a program. It's essentially for startups, right? In the emerging technologies, the ones that some of the ones that you've mentioned uh, so far. The current camp is synthetic reality. Let's d drill down on what that means. Uh, you're taking, yeah, so, you said you're taking a slightly different approach. I want to, I want to find out why it's so different. So, uh, so with synthetic reality, uh, it's a, essentially a new category or new term. And, and, and when the way that we think about it is that there are new um, AI and machine learning based uh, techniques, which are uh, enabling the creation of new kinds of content media experiences, which uh, we see blurring the boundaries between what we would say is the the real and the artificial or the synthetic. And so uh, examples of those are, you know, tools which you can use now to uh, or, or to create hyper-realistic CGI, uh, you know, on your computer or, or your, on your home computer or on your phone, um, sort of democratizing CGI in a way that, uh, you know, would cost millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars to create 20 years ago at sort of, you know, the studio level like Pixar is now stuff that, uh, you know, kids can can do at home uh, just by pulling the phone out, you know, out of their pocket. Uh, you know, we think a lot about sort of virtual characters. Uh, there's uh, these new uh, wave of influencers like Lil Michaela on Instagram. And these are synthetically generated characters which uh, take advantage of, again, these sort of tools and, and techniques for uh, creating and capturing, um, you know, basically 3D characters. Uh, we're looking at stuff like synthetic voice. So, uh, you know, we could do something where, uh, what's called style transfer, where you can, uh, you could take a recording of my voice and actually apply your voice to it and capture all the inflection, intonation, uh, you know, basically the, the, the same, uh, uh, you know, capturing all the same sort of, uh, dy you know, dynamism of, of, you know, the original recording. Um, you know, looking at things like uh, deep fakes, which, uh, you know, are being used sort of maliciously for putting um, people's faces into videos where, you know, originally, uh, uh, you know, it was not intended, but we see that there are new kinds of animation and creation techniques that are, are making it possible to put yourself or your friends into, you know, videos that you couldn't do. And we're an investor in a company called Morphin, which has a, a pretty cool app, which you can now uh, take popular GIFs and put yourself into the GIF. And so when the, the last uh, Avengers movie came out a few weeks ago, they had uh, uh, basically a website where you could upload a picture of yourself and, you uh, uh, you know, you would be in all these Avengers gifts. It's like kind of cool, fun stuff that, um, you know, we think are enabling a, a new wave of, of uh, how people create. Talk about, you mentioned certainly one example, but just talk about in general, uh, algorithmically generated creative content. 
Yeah, so uh, a few years ago, there was a new uh, technique called generative adversarial networks, which is a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, basically takes two neural nets and kind of um, pits them against each other. And this is really oversimplifying. And there's probably like a, a you know, a, a machine learning uh, expert who's cringing right now. But um, essentially uh, is able to uh, kind of synthesize the data in, in a way to, um, you know, create uh, uh, new kinds of, of you know, um, to basically take images and text and audio and things like that and kind of reform it in ways that um, would be extremely labor intensive if you were having humans do it. So, you know, an example that comes to mind is uh, you may have seen this sort of this person does not exist meme that was going around a few weeks ago where uh, there were, you know, these sort of virtual pictures of people that had never existed, but were generated by uh, an algorithm. And so those were GAN based. Uh, and so, um, you know, some of you'll see things where it is, um, uh, you're able to take a photo and then apply the visual style of a certain kind of painter, like a Picasso or something like that. Um, those are GAN-based techniques, which um, are able to synthesize uh, and extract sort of the key elements or qualities of something and then put it into uh, something else. And, and you see this, you know, across the board and, and uh, being used in lots of different really interesting ways. I mean, uh, one of the things that, that is really fascinating is the ability to, um, uh, you know, take um, uh, like a description of something and then generate a photo um, based on just the, the words that are being described, uh, in, uh, the words that are being uh, put into the description. And so uh, we have an investment company that's trying to do stock photos that way, where you can basically say, I need a dog, you know, with three footballs and it'll generate an Im a photo realistic image based on the library of information of images that it has and using a GAN based uh, machine learning engine. Are there any sort of ethical or um, bias implications that could be folded into this kind of technology that you guys are considering as you uh, potentially look at um, this as a camp and as training? Yeah, so there are tons of ethical implications, <laughs> um, for better or for worse. And, and, I, and I think, um, you know, as a caveat or uh, for context, that there are lots of different uh, ethical implications come up from lots of different technologies and that certainly if you want to uh, hoax somebody or trick people, you can do that with text right now on the internet, right? That's, that's, it's not something that is unique to uh, AI generated content or video. It's something like, uh, you know, a couple of humans uh, and a Facebook account can, uh, you know, wield a, a lot of, you know, do a lot of damage, right? So just sort of, you know, set the context there. And then, um, and there's certainly a lot of anxiety uh, when Photoshop was introduced and the ability to manipulate photos was something that became much, much easier to do, right? Um, and, and something that, you know, today we sort of bake into our assumptions when we look at a photo is uh, we look for signs of it being Photoshopped. And we also um, come to expect that, you know, some level of, of manipulation in photography, certainly in commercial photography, we know that it's all manipulated and edited uh, and, and changed around. So um, I think that, that, you know, that there are things that we have to be aware of and things we have to think about. Um, we actually, with this camp, we are creating an ethics board or council, which will bring in people from industry, uh, people from startups, uh, and people from academia to help, frankly, the companies, but also I think the industry more generally navigate, uh, you know, the, the ethical implications and where this stuff goes and, and hopefully set out some best practices around what people should do and what people shouldn't do. And, and I think some of it is relatively straightforward. Like, you know, if you are going to synthesize somebody's voice, you should have permission from the person whose voice you're using. And you should make sure that you're clearly, uh, you know, delineating 
what's going to be done or how it's going to be used. And, and you know, the company that we, we have a comp- an investment in a company called resemble.ai, which is building in this category. And they are not uh, uh, building a tool that anybody can just upload any audio they want and get a voice back. They are building something where, um, you know, if you are a media company, for example, and you have, uh, you know, the full rights to, uh, you know, the voices that you're using, um, you can use this engine to to create synthetic speech, it, or, or they might generate um, entirely like we like with those uh, pictures of people that didn't exist before voices that seem realistic and real, but don't actually belong to any you know human who's ever existed. So I think that you know the companies themselves have to start to um, you know put some uh, um, guardrails on. Uh, we have seen some legislation that was introduced uh, in the Senate, I think last year or earlier this year, was, was to, uh, to ban the deep fakes uh, that are distributed or created uh, into the commission of a fraud or a crime. So, um, you know, it's, I think it's hard to criminalize the act of creating a deep fake in the first place because on some level you'd be criminalizing every Hollywood movie <laughs> uh, that ever gets made because they all have some sort of special effects thing where they're manipulating people's faces and uh, you know, putting them into uh, other people's bodies and things like that. I mean, we kind of take that for granted now uh, that those sorts of effects are are available. I think what's challenging is that those effects are becoming available to regular people. And that is really where, um, you know, we have to become better educated ourselves as consumers of media. And I think we also have to start to think about um, the provenance of, of things that we consume. So if you see a video, uh, that's just randomly floating around on Facebook or Twitter and it has somebody uh, famous saying something that seems a little suspect, you know, maybe wait to see if it gets checked out and vetted by, uh, you know, a a news organization that you trust before you share it or comment on it or react to it. Um, Because I think partly what people want is they want sensationalistic things that create controversy that people react to that people share. And I think being a little less trigger happy on that stuff would be good, regardless of whether it's a deep fake or not. Uh, and not to keep pump, like promoting things that I've invested in, but we also invest in a company called Deep Trace, which is, uh, sells tools uh, for detecting these fakes. So helping uh, media companies, social networks, frankly, law enforcement, um, better uh, detect when um, somebody is using one of these GAN-based techniques to create something for a malicious purpose. So, uh, you know, if you need to know whether that video is of somebody actually saying what they're, you know, saying or doing what they're doing or, you know, robbing that bank or something like that, um, you know, it's a tool that will let you, uh, you know, analyze it. And and a lot of this stuff is not going to be immediately visually, you know, obvious to like the naked eye just watching it. You're not necessarily going to be able to pick this stuff out. There's going to be things that you have to pick out in the, you know, more subtle sort of digital signature of the video and you know at a pixel or sub pixel level so to speak that uh that lets you you know figure this stuff out not everyone you've had some really interesting uh results from your camps and but you're very selective about who you're going to admit into them what what kind of characteristics do you look for for a viable startup yeah um and, you know and, and to be clear i mean we we invest um we do that we do these camps these investment programs we invest also outside of the camps uh and uh you know it's not the only way that we like to work with companies, but it's one way that we um, love to pick a category that we're really excited about. We pick a new theme um, once or twice a year that we want to go really uh, deep on and really focus on and get to understand better. And so the thing that we look for is one, is it a company building in the category that we're focusing on? Um, and so 
past themes have been things like computer vision or voice computing. Uh, and then beyond that, is it something where uh, we see a, a viable path for the company to build something that grows and becomes successful? And so part of that is, at this, especially this early stage, it's part of it's the team and the founders. Um, we don't really bring admit anything that isn't um, already at least at a sort of alpha prototype stage for the product and the further along the better. This isn't come and figure something out or have you have an idea and, and maybe you can build it, maybe you can't. We really focus on founders that can build. And the three-month program is very focused on, you know, on the build side of things. Um, and then I think we also look at, um, you know, do you have some unique perspective or insight into the category that you're building on? And, and then I think the ability to uh, develop the business side of it. And I think one of the things that's really challenging uh, especially even for me as an investor looking at companies and, and meeting founders is that sometimes the people who can build a really great product or have uh, the, the best developers or are the best with, uh, you know, creating the new technology, they're not always great at um, thinking through like, how do I actually bring this to market? How do I think about this as a product with a business model behind it? Or how do I, uh, how do I think about marketing or evangelism or whatever, you know, I need to do to, to build the business. And sometimes, unfortunately, the best products don't win. Um, sometimes it's the, 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 the founders or the, the company that has the best strategy for getting into the market and for thinking about how it gets sold. And so not that you have to be laser focused on making money or um, have your marketing strategy locked down from the first day, but I think when I have founders that are at least thinking about what does it look like for this to be something that I do for the next five to 10 years and not just how do I build something cool and have fun and maybe it goes somewhere, maybe it doesn't. Peter Roja, partner at Betawork Ventures, always doing something really interesting. If somebody wants to connect with you, maybe they want to find out more about your camps or just connect with you, how can they do that? Uh, it's really easy. You can uh, contact me at my website. It's roj.as or uh, ping me on Twitter at Peter Rojas. Uh, and also I do have a podcast, uh, which uh, thank you for uh, not letting me forget this. Uh, so I, I um, uh, have a new show. It was a limited run. We did eight episodes called Zero G, and you can find it. It's anchor.fm slash the number zero and the letter G, uh, and uh, which amazingly was available as a URL. Uh, and it is a show that I do with Christy Pitts, who is an also investor. Uh, she works at Backstage Capital, but uh, in a past life, uh, she was uh, worked Verizon Retail in Gilroy, California. And so I uh, was on the front lines uh, of the smartphone revolution. And, um, and I obviously I did Gizmodo and Engadget. And, uh, and so I, uh, she and I, we talk about smartphones from before the iPhone and, and all the weird, wonderful uh, devices that uh, we all thought were gonna be, uh, uh, we, we all saw changing the world and, and we all thought Nokia and Palm <laughs> were gonna be around forever. Uh, and that turned out, turned out to be the case. And so it's a little bit of a, um, sort of the rise and fall of this first generation of, of smartphones. And so we talk, uh, we nerd out, we go year by year, uh, starting in 2002. Uh, when, and we finish things off with a bonus tablets episode where we talk about uh, all the, the crazy tablets that kind of went nowhere uh, until the iPad took off. Well, I would say don't miss it. Thanks again, Peter, for coming on and, uh, oh. and also sharing your podcast. No, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And if you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.